Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. The town of Tolland and its new Birch Grove School comes under federal investigation. We find out why. And giving hope to those looking for that perfect event space. We talk to the owners of Hope Lodge in Musa. And we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Former state employee Costa Diamantes is under FBI investigation for his role in various school construction projects across the state and his involvement with the Connecticut Port Authority's state peer project in New London. The state has already received a grand jury subpoena to hand over materials relating to these projects and all communications had by Diamantes as well. And just recently, the town of Tolland was subpoenaed over their new Birchgrove school that was built with state money and involved Diamantes. I caught up with Republican State Representative Tammy Nuccio of the 53rd District that covers Tolland to talk more about the situation. State Representative, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. A lot of investigation being undertaken at the moment on the current administration, and in particular, we're talking about school projects, ongoing FBI investigation. There's been also changes in personnel, obviously, at the administration as well, because of people that have left or have been moved out. What can you tell us about a recent meeting that uh, you and other legislative committee members had with some of these new representatives from the administration? It sounds like weren't too happy with sort of the comments that were being made. Well, I think the intent of the meeting was to kind of reassure the representatives and the senators that everything was being looked at in relation to the school financing project and the peer project and just kind of give us an update. But uh, I did take exception to the deputy commissioner saying that or implying that, you know, the towns really had a lot of say in how this, these projects went and it was their responsibility to make sure they knew who they were hiring and everything else, because, you know, it's not a secret. The main school that they're looking at in this this whole debacle is Tallinn's Birch Grove School. And um, I've been a resident of Tallinn for 35 years, 36 years now. And I was chairwoman of the town council when all this was happening. And, you know, we didn't have a choice. There was no choice. I have several meetings that I was at with the representative from the state of Connecticut telling us, here's your team. Here's who you're going to work with. And I'm on record on, in minutes and in meetings pushing back on the no bid process and such and just saying, you know, I don't feel good about this. Why are we doing that? And, and us being told, listen, this is how you're going to do it if you want to keep this reimbursement rate. This is how you're going to do it if you want to keep an emergency status. And, you know, there, to imply that the towns have more control of this, you know, when we don't is just it's unfair and it's it's disingenuous. 
And just for clarification, uh, State Representative, when you talk about the individual, uh, we are talking about the now dismissed Konstantinos Diamantis, who was the former director and is at, now at the centre of obviously a growing FBI inquiry. Would that be correct? Yes, absolutely. And do you recall any sort of like conversations that you had directly with Mr. Diamantis at all? You've made the comment just moments ago that, you know, you were not given a choice because, you know, the the media reporting that is happening is saying that he basically said to people, you know, this is the situation. I mean, is that, you know, do you agree with, you know, how things have been reported and that that was the case? Well, okay. I guess I should rephrase that. Everybody always has a choice, right? So I I guess theoretically, we did have a choice, but we were threatened, I would say. We were definitely threatened with if we tried to delay the process by going with a bid approval, like a whole bidding process that we would lose emergency status, we would lose our enhanced funding, right? So when you don't know any better and you've got a school, and on one hand, you've got people telling you that your school could fall down with kindergartners in it, you're under the pressure to do the right thing and in an emergent status, right? So when somebody's telling you, you have to do this, or you're going to lose your emergency status in that, you make the decision that you have to make to protect your residents. And in this case, we fell prey to somebody saying, this is what you have to do. We were in a meeting when he said, here's your team, here's who you're working with. There was no option. It was already set up given to us from the get-go. So you have to do at that point what you have to do in order to get a school for the safety of these children. So there was pressure. There was threatening with losing the emergency status and losing the funding and that. And, you know, at that point, you're talking about volunteers at a local level who are elected residents just trying to make the best decision that they can. And the state is in a position of power there. So you don't really have the ability to fight back. And again, just for clarification, while we're talking about this state representative, we are talking about Birchgrove Primary School in Holland. And the reason that that school had to be given emergency status was that the original school was found to have the the crumbling concrete foundation issue, which uh, ultimately meant that it was not a usable property. And then obviously a, a new school had to be built, correct? Yes. And a little different too, when you talk about the crumbling foundation in a school, the whole school is made out of concrete. So what we were told was that the concrete was debonding from the steel, which made it um, extremely hazardous. So it wasn't just a foundation, it was the entire school that had a possibility of having crumbling concrete. And of course, this wasn't a cheap project either, was it? I believe it was in the the 40 to 50 million dollar range. Is that correct? Can you just give us a little bit of... (laughs) Well, it started there. That's where I think there's a lot of stuff that's a little weird with the project too. It started out at a 46 million dollar project and then our 1 million dollar portables went from $1 million to $9 million. And then at a critical point in the project, they were found to have some unsuitable soils. And instead of that project being stopped and brought back to the town council, to say, hey, we found an issue. Can we, how do we want to look at this? Somebody somewhere along the way decided to keep going and not contacting the town council until they were well down the way. And all of a sudden we had another $2 million worth of expenses for that. And then there was the supposed cost of the steel went up half a million dollars. And we were told that it was about a compressed timeline, but our timeline never changed. You know, there were a lot of little weird things that happened with the school project along the way. So in the end, I think it ended up costing, well, 46 plus the additional 10, like probably about 57, 58 
million dollars. And was the town of Holland on the hook for any of that extra money or did the state step up and deal with those extra costs? What was the situation there? Well, with the portables, the state stepped up to pay the extra money on that. And the um, the soils came down to, um, they tried to get the town council to cover it. And I put my foot down on that one, along with other people on the Birch Grove Committee and other people on the town council. And there was a meeting that's recorded out there in minutes and everything, where I pretty much said, no, I wanted to know who made the decision. Because whoever made that decision is the one who should be on the hook for the extra money because they proceeded with work that wasn't approved. And I pushed and pushed in that meeting and said, listen, there was a $46 million project. I want it on time and at $46 million. And I want to know who made the decision. And the more I pushed, all of a sudden it just became, well, we'll figure out a way for the state to pay for it. And the state ended up paying the overage on the soils. They paid 100% of the overage on the soils also. So if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, you, what you never got Um, an actual answer from them, but suddenly they decided that they weren't going to push the matter and that the the state coughed up the cash. Correct. And I'm guessing you found that, what, an acceptable, I mean, clearly it was... Oh, I still still don't find it acceptable. I'm still complaining about it. (laughs) And of course, now a federal subpoena has been issued against the town of Tolland, specifically with regards to the Birch Grove Primary School project. Were you surprised uh, at that? I know that you can't talk about it much because obviously it is a federal investigation and there is little that one can can really discuss but were you and others surprised when that suddenly appeared i was not surprised just because i'd been following what was happening at the state level and i knew the school construction portion of this was a big focus i just had a feeling that we would be looped back into it and being one of the recent schools that were completed. And you're right, you know, there's not a whole lot that I can talk about with that other than to say that I am confident that my town will comply 100% with whatever the FBI needs to reassure them our role and everything that happened. Clearly, we all have to wait for the results of the, you know, the FBI investigation. But how do you think, you know, what sort of light do you think this puts on the state overall when suddenly the feds are involved and, you know, people that were in jobs are no longer there and, uh, you know, it, it all seems rather shady. I would agree with you. Um, and I think I raised this point in the finance meeting too, where I really struggle with this. The state wants us to believe that all of a sudden they're going to audit the audit and they're going to, this is not going to happen again. And one of the questions that I asked that everybody kind of just stared at me and didn't have a reply for is, did you raise a red flag when this whole thing started, when you decided to move the Office of School Construction from one area to another? And if you did, who did you raise that red flag to? And nobody could answer that question. So at this point right now, no, I don't have, I don't have confidence that we can do this ourselves. And I'm actually kind of disappointed that we haven't seen people on the other side of the aisle agree that we should do an internal investigation to figure this out. Because the FBI is investigating the behavior of one of the state of Connecticut's employees. And the state of Connecticut doesn't seem to have the interest to do an internal audit to find out what happened, how is this culture allowed, and how do we change that? And I find that disappointing. And also, I believe that the whole federal investigation of sort of came out of thin air, really. And we're not talking about the Tolland situation. That seemed to come out of thin air after the governor's office uh, released information because of pressure from a freedom of information request by the media. You're right. You know, and I think people... With the freedom of information requests, I don't think 
I just don't think overall those are being taken as seriously as they should be. Our government, if it is not transparent, has absolutely no trust from the public as far as I'm concerned. I don't trust a government that isn't transparent. I don't trust it at any level, local, state, federal, across the board. It's our right to the information that our government has. And if it's not being met, then again, I don't trust our state is doing enough to ensure that we are protecting the people of the state. State Representative Tammy Nuccio for Ashford, Tolland and Willington. Thank you ever so much for your comments. Thank you. Finding that perfect venue for your event can be challenging, and that's exactly what happened to our next interviewee, Susie Bernardo. But undeterred, Susie and her sister-in-law, Lisa, found what they were looking for and decided to buy it. So I visited the venue to have a chat with them. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Excited to be here. Well, I'm excited as well because I came here fairly recently, which is how this story has come about. So we're going to tell the people a little bit about this beautiful building, which you have done incredible things with. We are sat here at one of the tables, empty now, but normally it is an event space. So I'm just going to say to you, Susie, 2020, you decide to open up a business in the height of COVID. You find this building. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think partially I've always thought about doing something like this. A couple years back, my grandmother passed away and we were searching everywhere, trying to find a decent place that we can do her repass. And we could not find anything in this area. We had to go all the way to Rhode Island to do it. And I would just kept saying to my family, this is so ridiculous that we don't have anything that is nice and beautiful and affordable. And so I kind of put it in a back burner and we just kind of talked about it a little bit. And I was like, oh, I'll keep it in the back of my mind. And then COVID happened. And I'm a nurse practitioner by my day job. And so it was a very stressful time. And every day I would think I would love to have something else or to do something else. This is so depressing. (laughs) And we were just kind of like talking about it one day. And I just said, you know, I would love to look for a place that we could do this venue. And it just so happened we were driving by this building and I saw a for sale sign. I called up Lisa and I'm like, there's this building for sale and I think we need to take a look at it. And she's like, where is it? I'm like, it moves up. She's like, where? (laughs) And I'm like, it's in this little small town, but that's not the point. This is a really nice building. We need to come and see it. So we called our realtor and she brought us in here and we literally fell in love with this place. So let me bring Lisa in. Lisa, when you got that telephone call from Susie saying, hey, I found a building and let's start this business, Mm -hmm. what did you think? So it was very funny because, so I moved from France five years ago where I was working at an event venue there and then at a hotel. So I was familiar with the industry and I loved it. So when Susie was bringing up that she wanted to open a venue, you know, I was excited, like, you know, in the back of my head, but I didn't know if that would really happen. So when it actually got more serious and when Susie told us that she found maybe a venue for us, I was like, okay, let's go check it out. Uh, And as soon as we put a step in this building, 
we, I think we just became obsessed with it. Yeah. And we had to have it. It's easy to see how you can become obsessed with this builder because, and please don't take this the wrong way when I say it, it doesn't necessarily look that much from the outside and yep. then you walk inside. <laughs> exactly. And I'm sure a lot of it is down to both of you and obviously the remodeling. But, you know, we're sat in this beautiful, light, airy hall. There is a gorgeous chandelier hanging here, which we'll be discussing in a little bit. Stained glass windows. I mean, it is so light and airy, and you just feel so happy yes. here. I mean, the light is pouring through the windows. We're recording on a day where it's a nice, you know, bright, sunny day. But it just feels so comforting. It's, it's just perfect. It really was. It just made us feel exactly what you said. Very peaceful. But the interesting thing about it is it's got a little bit of a checkered history, hasn't it? Because it's been many things over the years, this building. But one in particular was a Veterans of Foreign Wars bar. Didn't have the best reputation, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, it was one of the first things our neighbors said to us was, are you going to be putting a bar here? Because they were so fearful of what happened, you know, in the past couple of years happening again. And we said to them, no, we're actually going to take our time and bring the character back alive in this building. And we're going to use it as a happy space, you know, where people can gather, have a good time and enjoy themselves and not have to worry about neighbors being upset and fights and all kinds of craziness that was going on here before. So everybody has been so supportive. Yes. I can't even say. (laughs) Almost everyone that has any kind of history and lives in this town and knows this building have called us, sent us emails, sent us letters, Mm -hmm. stopped by just to say thank you for bringing this building back alive. So let's talk about it, because like I said, as we sit here and bask in the hard work that, you know, you've all been involved in, and obviously the money as well, because this sort of stuff doesn't come cheap. Again, let's talk about this beautiful chandelier, which is must be, I mean, probably about six or eight feet tall, suspended. It's the central piece here in the hall. Was that here? Or just tell us a little bit about that. Nope, it was not here. There (laughs) was nothing at all when we uh, got the building. So it was very brown, very dusty. The floors was a disaster. But what got us, as you said, was the windows and the wooden ceiling. So for the chandelier, we were on a hunt to find the perfect one. And what happened is that we ordered it online, so we were just so excited about it. But they didn't tell us that each single bulbs and strings came in different boxes. So thank you to my husband. Susie's brother and uh, Bonnell, her other brother, that put it up together for three days, I think. It, it took, took three them. days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, that yeah. is... That's... Not to mention, like, our contractor's team who suspended themselves to bolt this onto the ceiling and put the wiring. I mean, it literally took a team of men. Yes. But it's so worth it because it's the first thing that you see when you enter the room. Totally. How much other work needed to be done? Because like I said, we're sat here now and it looks stunning. It's beautiful. I mean, you know, you can see why people want to come here and have events. But just how much work was involved? It was a lot of work. I mean, it's a 133-year-old building. so But it has good bones. That's true. So that helped a little that bit. helped a lot, but everything had to be upgraded. We had to put insulation in, put walls in, 
redo the whole electrical, all the plumbing. There were no bathrooms. Like she said, the floor was a disaster. There was really not a lot except for the main characters of the building. We kept a lot of the same, like even the paneling on the wall. We just lightened it up with color, but everything in here is new. The air conditioning, the heating system everything. There's beautiful contrasts in here as well. Again, I'm just explaining this because obviously it's an audio sort of like podcast but so we've got beautiful stained glass windows. Ceiling in here is natural wood colour which is just such a great juxtaposition to these lovely creamy coloured walls that you've gone for and then it's like, you know, uh, it's like a nice wooden floor which all of it just contrasts so well. We've got sort of like beautiful doors on a little like kitchen type area as well here. Who came up with some of the ideas? Was it a joint thing? I mean and again, Lisa, you were saying, you know, that is your background in events mm-hmm. and whatever. And obviously, you know, we all like to go to beautiful venues for events. <laughs> so, you know, was it just like a combination of both of your like dreams to, to come up with how this would look? I think it was a combination of every member of the family has an idea. Though maybe we had too many ideas that we had to concentrate on what is really that we want to do if that makes sense yeah because i mean it's you can get hold of a space and i suppose where it's so empty the mind just goes mad as to then what you want to do yes. with it so yeah you sort of have to then control yourself I exactly suppose. but what we really want to do is to have a bright elegant room very simple but we added some bond doors and little touches here and there that just bring a little charm to the room, if I can say it like that. So we wanted to go rustic, but not too much. So if you want to have a rustic event, you can bring your own touches to it. Or if you want to have something more col- colorful, you can bring your own colors to the room as well. It's sort of like rustic chic. Exactly. Like you said, we've, got, you know, yeah. we've got the beautifulness, as I say, the contrast of the beautiful light fixture and, as I say, other things as well around here. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk to you, Susie, about is your family's from Haiti. And part of this sort of journey for you, uh, you were saying earlier as well, was to find a venue, and, and you struggle to find those. But part of the culture of Haiti is that when you go to events, you bring your own food, and you wanted people to be able to do that at this event. Why is that so important? I think it's important because we are so diverse, and we want to enjoy our diversity. And one of the main things is food. You know, for us in our culture, food is like the number one thing. Everyone cooks slightly different, but all those recipes that are coming from your auntie or from your grandma or from your mom, they're special and you want them at your special events. And we always struggled with that. Not even just Haitian people. We have a lot of different diversities in this area, as in different cultures. We have people from India, people from different parts of Asia, different parts of Africa, and they struggle with this issue as well. So that was one of the first things we decided on when doing this venue. You can bring any caterer you want. You can bring your own food if you want. You can get a food truck if you want. You can literally pick whatever you want your menu to be. And it's an event venue. What type of events can people have here? Any. They can literally have any events. We've had corporate meetings here. We've had, you were here with our networking events. We do weddings, birthday parties, 
graduations, we've had proms, people looking for a place for a prom. We can hold such a large amount of people on our upper level. We can hold 170 people sitting. So it's very spacious, but you can also make it more intimate if you wanted to. We do mini weddings, smaller parties, so you can really make it your own. And we have our lower level opening up in April, and our lower level will be for 80 people and for smaller events, smaller birthday parties. We have some really great packages that people can pick out. We have this birthday party collaboration with Sadie's Sweet Shop. So if you want to have a birthday party for your child, you come in for two hours and everything is done for you. You get your food, your drinks, activities, everything pretty much ready to go. I need to quickly ask you as well, Hope Lodge, where did the name come from? Really, in the midst of all the COVID, you know, we kept saying we have to hope that things are going to get better. Hope was a major factor, I think, for many of us, especially in, in healthcare, that got us through it. And so when we're sitting there thinking about different names, we really got to go with Hope. Mm -hmm. And I think Lisa picked Lodge because she felt like it was like yeah. a Lodge type of a feel. And so we kind of just put the name together and it just kind of Yeah, we really fit. like the word hope. I'm just going to give a little shout out to my husband since his last name is Esperance, which means hope in English from friends. I think, you know, that was, yeah. we're just all so very connected with the word hope that it just makes sense that, and with COVID and everything, it, that was it. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to both of you congratulations on what as I say is an amazing venue and to do it at a time as I say when the world was closing down but you stuck with your guns and there is this amazing place that people can come to and you certainly have given people a lot of hope uh, Susie Bernardo and Lisa Esperance of Hope Lodge in Musa thank you thank you and if you want to find out more about Hope Lodge and the services they provide visit their website at thehopelodgevenue.com Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. And less than two years at the job and John Henshaw, the executive director of the Connecticut Port Authority, will step down in April as head of the quasi-public agency as a federal investigation continues into Costa Diamantis, a former state budget official who had dealings with the authority. The announcement was made in a press release issued by the CPA. Henshaw took over the authority in September 2020 after the previous executive director, Evan Matthews, resigned amid investigations into financial irregularities at the agency and policy issues, as well as public comments Matthews had made about Port Authority critic Kevin Blacker. Henshaw was previously head of the Maine Port Authority and says he will return to Maine to pursue other opportunities. In the meantime, David Kouros, the current board chair of the CPA, has been reappointed by Governor Lamont to serve another four-year term at the agency. With the once-a-decade redistricting process finalised in Connecticut, Good Government Groups says it's time to keep an eye on the next stage, the creation of voting districts. Emily Scott of the Connecticut News Service explains. 
Also known as electoral districts or wards, these are the hyperlocal areas that determine polling place locations on election day. Joan Twiggs with the League of Women Voters of Connecticut says issues can arise in creating these districts. For instance, in the Hartford County of Newington, she says a recent proposal raised concerns by recommending the town's eight voting districts be reduced to three. And then it's pretty easy to see that that could easily have impact on voting itself. Lines could get longer, transportation may be much more difficult, and all of the difficulties compound to really a possible state of voter dropout. Twig says backlash about the proposal prompted Newington's registrar of voters to adjust the plan to seven districts. In the latest U.S. Census, Connecticut had one of the lowest rates of population growth between 2010 and 2020 in the country, with most of the growth in the western part of the state's New York metro area. I'm Emily Scott. The long-awaited National Coast Guard Museum in New London could start phase one construction this summer. Wes Pulver, the president of the Museum Association, made the announcement at a recent New London Council meeting. Mike Passero is the mayor of New London and said much of the city's waterfront plaza will still be open and available, despite some local businesses' concerns. City Pier will still be open, the floating docks will still be open, and they're going to preserve our use of the remaining portion of the plaza. And of course, all the rest of the waterfront and the downtown will be unaffected by this phase of the construction. For the summer of 2022, the impacts will not be that great. Construction is set to begin at City Pier after the city hosts its annual Sailfest event in early July and is subject to receiving permits from the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection and the Army Corps of Engineers. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.